Hi, and welcome to Third Waves. Third is an intersectional publication celebrating culture, heritage, and diversity. And on Third Waves, we will do the same. I am Daniela. I'm a writer, musician, and producer. I am Marina, stylist, creative director, and founder of Third. Welcome to this episode of Third Waves. This is actually the second part of our tourism episode, which aired a few weeks ago. We previously touched on the ethics of tourism in general, and today we'll be expanding that a little, looking further into the darker side of tourism. Talking to us about some of these issues is Debbie Lahr. She is a professor of international relations, school of history, anthropology, philosophy, and politics at Queen's University, Belfast. She is also the author of the book, Holidays in the Danger Zone, Entanglements of War and Tourism. We'll also be hearing again from Tom Selwyn. He gave us an in-depth interview in our previous episode. He is a professorial research associate at the Department of Anthropology and Sociology at SOAS and the London Middle East Institute. He is widely published in the field of anthropology of tourism, pilgrimage, and with regional interests in Palestine and Israel. Okay, so one of the big ideas behind this episode is dark tourism. Um, So for those of you who are listening in who maybe have never heard of this term before, we have a definition. So dark tourism is defined as tourism that involves traveling to places associated with death and suffering, generally going to places we see as no-go areas. Funnily enough, one of the top suggestions on Google when you type in dark tourism is the Netflix series under the same name. Yeah, and actually, when you type in dark tourism Netflix, the next thing that comes up, like the auto-suggestion, is is dark tourism on Netflix real? People, I think some some people who haven't really come across this term or this idea before, um, maybe people who only go to like beaches for the sunbathing and swimming, um, probably find it quite strange, the idea that anybody will want to go uh, to somewhere and that that's linked with death and suffering. Um, but as evocative as this term dark tourism is, what I find um, very interesting is that actually once you start looking into it, you realise that people's um, motivations for going to those places are very varied. Um, and on the face of it, it sounds like a really kind of salacious thing to do. I don't think that that is actually always the case. Yeah, I think one of the things that drew us to do the second episode on tourism was also that speaking into Debbie recently and also Tom for our last episode both mentioned dark tourism but sort of critiqued the term in itself and said that to see dark tourism as just being about basically going to places to experience death was quite limiting and also maybe the connotations of the word dark tourism were not always didn't really give the right ideas about what dark tourism is actually about yeah um so i guess maybe it would be quite useful to go into some examples of yeah yeah let's do that um so for example um if you go to east london around the whitechapel area and 
you want to go on a tour i mean there are lots of tours on offer so you can go on a street art tour you can go on probably a curry tour and Jack the Ripper is from that area so you can actually go on a Jack the Ripper tour where somebody will take you around and show you the places allegedly he killed his victims um so this i could be considered an example of a dark tourism tour picking up from the sort of Netflix series as well i know there's an episode in which they travel to a place in Japan where the area that they go to has been destroyed and the air is highly toxic because of um, a bomb that exploded there um, but tourists can go through and you know get tours of the area and wear masks and etc and that's the thing that happens mm. so yeah interesting definitely a very interesting show and and if you haven't heard about it or seen it before is a series headed up by the journalist David Ferrier. And I would also highly recommend a documentary he made a few years ago called Tickled, um, which is very strange. Um, I won't say anything about it because I think anybody watching that film should just go into it without knowing anything. But anyway, so he's, to me, an interesting journalist. And, and this show is all about visiting those places associated with dark tourism. And yeah, one of the other episodes... He goes to Kazakhstan and again visits some radioactive places with uh, a guy who once travelled to a war zone and basically tasted the the thrill of near-death experiences and continued to search out those things. But what was really interesting in, in kind of looking at some of those things that David Ferrier found out was that, for example, when he was in the the radioactive lake, he sort of ponders that whilst knowing that he was in a radioactive lake... Um, he had a moment of of kind of exhilaration because he felt that he was escaping normality and and some stumbling across something quite unexpected and beautiful, and I guess yeah that juxtaposition of what your normal day to day is with this darkness around you is kind of one of the things that maybe draw people in. Yeah, definitely. I think he also expanded on that and he said um, something like. Sometimes I've realised that the simple pleasures of dark tourism is the realisation of how good I have it back home. Um, so mm. that's where he's explicitly touching on, I guess, how being a dark tourist allows you to reflect on your own life in a weird yeah. way. So I suppose that's actually the crux of, of what's interesting to us about the whole dark tourism thing. Yeah, as Rona said, late, later on you'll hear from Debbie and Tom why the term dark tourism as it's framed in actually, you know, anthropology and academics is quite limiting. What's really interesting about it for us is that it's a very explicit version of privilege exercising its privilege no <laughs> um i don't know this no, is so I, I complex think... <laughs> to frame <laughs> no I, I think going back to what he's saying is that he's going to these places and he is experiencing all the brutality all the toxicity of the air and that's okay for him because he knows that that is fundamentally still an experience and mm. when his ticket runs out he's gonna go back home though i'm sure um, what he was also trying to say is that seeing the things he has in these countries maybe has given him like a new viewpoint on his own life. Um, it is still an experience that he can escape from, you know? Uh, so it's something he's able to access, to use the term, and then escape. 
mm. you know um and that does definitely come with privilege yeah this actually reminds me to talk about this term i came across this word um looking into doctorism let's see if i can pronounce it correctly uh tanaptosis is spelt with th at the beginning and it's a, it's a term that was coined by a poet called william cullen bryant what the word means is to have a view or contemplation of death and so some academic in the literature of doctorism uses word very often and say that you know it's it's a possibility to understand one's own future and death through seeing it in in something that has happened already and so this particular um, academic called Dr. Maximiliano Costanje um, says that you know this allows us to think of dark tourism as a subtype of heritage and even connected to pilgrimage this ties into what you were saying of of highlighting the difference between your life and how how perhaps how good you have it or just in the fact that you are alive and you're on a site where people have died um it it brings you that exhilaration of of living really yeah definitely i think yeah it gives you that exhilaration of living and i would hope as well that i think there can be like a historical benefit to going to these places and contemplating on some of the damage that has been created to be able to see those things you know it's ve- it's a very different experience as being told about it. So Daniela, do you feel like you've ever experienced anything which could be described or identified as dark tourism? Maybe by this definition and not by this definition, we could say. Mm, that's a really good question. I suppose I've definitely been to places like, you know, the Imp- Imperial War Museum in Manchester or in other places. But sometimes I feel like whenever I go to a place where I feel that my privilege is very explicit in the face of the poverty of where I'm visiting, to me, that feels like a kind of dark side of tourism where the power dynamics that that privilege brings means that you're you're necessarily in an exploitative relationship with the place that you're visiting so although that isn't about going to a place associated with death and destruction it could be considered maybe a version of that sense of juxtaposition between you the quality of your life compared to somebody else's perhaps and that sense of how good do I have it at home I don't think you necessarily have to go to a place associated with with death to get that feeling yeah I would agree with you actually because um just speaking about that I think one of the instances where I felt quite dark about my tourism has been in uh, places where I've been um a customer and the, the person who's been selling to me like chewing gum or whatever has been a child mm. uh, and that's always made me feel quite uncomfortable and um, I think it, it definitely does hark back to that position uh, that to what you said about in that instance you're very aware of the privilege that you have which has kind of allowed you to come to this place in the first instance uh, but also is you know because this person doesn't have the same opportunity they're not able to access school or those sort of things or I don't know, maybe they're having to, maybe it's a bit reductive to say they're not able to access school, but um, 
they're having to take on things that you wouldn't have had to at that age. You know? Sure. A child shouldn't have to do that. Mm. And so in that moment, you're very aware yeah. of like the privilege that you have. And But then this is just other people's lives. I suppose we will come definitely uh, come back to this question of how tourism can exert a kind of abusive relationship, especially on children, um, a bit later on. I think the, the crux of, of our discussion right now is, is about broadening this concept of dark tourism and the darkness of tourism into the question of privilege and the exercising of privilege when people go traveling um, and being aware of that when you do. Because I, for me, the, one of the things that really holds me back from going on trips is this question of who am I to, you know, with my privilege, go to these places and enjoy the hell out of it and leave thinking I've expanded my worldview. And my doing so, does it... I think it's for me, the difficulty is in not knowing whether my my traveling behaviors would be um, extending the damaging side of tourism. Because I think some of this information is really hard to extract, like let, let alone the kind of ecological footprint just from flying and all this kind of stuff. It's really hard to access the information around how you impact a local community by contributing to the fact that your tourism could perhaps is their main form of um, income as an area. Hello. Hi, Debbie. It's Daniela. So, Debbie, you have worked a very long time in this complex field of anthropology and tourism. Is there something specific that you're focused on at the moment? Yeah, um, I mean, I'm not an anthropologist, but I do work with anthropolo anthropologists and I read a lot of their work. Um, so my background is more international politics, international relations, and that's the kind of frame that I use to look at tourism. So my most recent work has been on um, the intersections of tourism and migration, and mostly in regards to the migration, I'm putting quotes around it, the crisis, um, in Europe in terms of um, arriving migrants, mostly in 2015, 2016, when it sort of peaked. I mean, there's still, it's still an issue, but, um, so I was, I've been looking recently at the, the different intersections about how tourist circulations going to places like the Greek islands are intersecting with migrants kind of coming the other way and how those encounters happen and what they mean and what they look like. So that's the most, that's my most recent work in, uh, with respect to tourism. Wow, that sounds really fascinating. Um, is there any example or case study that you could maybe just give us a bit of insight around on that specific topic? Cost is important in the recent migration flows because it's so it's geographically so close to the Turkish coast. So that's why you saw a lot of the boats uh, arriving on cost. But the other issue with cost, unlike the other islands, like Lesbos, for example, is that the, the, the migrants, when they arrived, were arriving directly onto the tourist beaches. So that made it, the encounter actually much more explicit in a way. Um, because in other cases, the, the, the sort of tourist, tourist circulations weren't really in precisely the same space as the migrant ones. But um, so, yeah, the, the fieldwork I've done is mainly on, on costs. 
So I looked, for example, at how um, a couple of different tourist spaces or tourist infrastructures were adapted to when the migrants arrived. But right at the sort of peak of when the numbers were arriving on CASA would be sort of July 2015, the local sort of officials made a decision to uh, sort of collect or round up, as it were, uh, many of the, the migrants that were sort of camping in, in tourist spaces or in parks and attractions, that kind of thing, and sort of push them into the soccer stadium, so a, a, a space that would have been used for things like concerts or, you know, soccer games or things like that, ended up becoming effectively a space of incarceration over a 24-hour period for the migrants. Uh, ostensibly to register them, but of course they didn't put in the infrastructure needed to do that properly. So it was they were sort of penned into the space for a 24-hour period with no food or water or toilets or anything like that. Do you also come across any any stories of regarding tourists themselves yep. getting involved? Um, yeah, like um, those are examples of actual sort of infrastructure and spaces being used. Um, I guess one thing to say about that would be. I understand the kind of need to try to frame the positive aspects of tourism, and they do they do exist. So there were on cost, for example, there are many many examples of of tourists who were already on the island, for example, for their holiday, and then when migrants arrived, they were confronted with the sort of radical asymmetry between their own positioning and what was in front of them. And many many of them obviously uh, helped, right? So they sort of with local volunteer groups or with um, restaurants uh, and hotels, mostly restaurants or whatever, to distribute food. Uh, and there's there's a lot of media coverage, and you can go back and see some of the photographs and the images of, of tourists doing that. So that, that is part of what happened, but that's not all that happened. Lots of tourists completely ignored it. Um, and, of course, the many of them just chose, not, chose to go elsewhere on their holidays, so the tourist economy on the island um, decreased, obviously, and of course, you get the usual Daily Mail stories of, you know, refugees ruined my holiday. Mm-hmm. Th- those exist as well. I mean, my own view is you, we can find those positive stories and they're important to talk about, but but none of them obviate the sort of what I would say is the complicity of all tourism, no matter what kind it is, even the most ethical, the kind of complicity of those economies and those structures in wider forms of I don't know, violence, exploitation, inequality at the global level. So I, I know I, I'm often accused of being negative or being overly sort of pessimistic. I, I don't see myself as pessimistic, but I, I don't think we're going to get anywhere unless we really encourage people to confront their own complicity with the structures that might produce migrants arriving on the same beach as you're trying to have a holiday in. Yeah. So, so on that, um, one of the things that we've been really fascinated by is this question of whether tourism is in some ways a necessary evil, um, uh-huh. in the sense that um, in many areas in the world um, there is a real codependency, um, yeah. where it's, it's a huge source of income for that area and the people who live there. Um, but then, of course, in some areas, tourism declines. Um, for whatever reason, maybe because the area is affected by turbulence such as war. I'm just interested in the question of like what happens to those types of communities and and your thoughts uh, in the general sense around that topic. I don't know, the necessary evil question, 
Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I would frame it like that, I, but I do understand the point. But again, to go back to what I was saying earlier, it's, you, you know, the, the tourism economies are always part of a wider global economy, and that global economy is, is constitutively unequal. You know, I mean, that's what it is. That's what our neoliberal economy is, and it has been for a long time. So, so are there examples of tourism that are better than others? Yes. Are there examples where um, people have given a lot of thought to how they would reinvest in local communities, that sort of thing? Yes, there are those things, and there's more of them. And I mean, it's largely under the label of ethical tourism. But again, I would I would be sort of wary of of assuming that that, uh, you know, excuses everybody from their complicity, because I don't think it does. The argument here is that tourism is framed as the savior, right? So tourism is going to save the economy. Tourism is going to solve all our problems. So all we need to do to regenerate our economy is to, is to build ourselves as a tourist destination. And you see this most often in post-conflict spaces uh, all, all over the world. You see that. Um, and, and that's, the difficulty, right? Because of course it doesn't always do that. It most often doesn't. And your question I think is really interesting around what happens when tourism goes elsewhere or the decline. Um, and I think the sort of the most recent example of that was really stark was um, after the financial crisis in 2008, you see all of these sites in Spain and Portugal where they were literally in the middle of building hotels you know, or guest houses, and then the crash hits, and you see all these sort of really bizarre ruins of, of half-built tourist structures that are just empty now, you know? I think those sites are provocative to help us think about that. I mean, there's also, if you think in the same type of spaces, there's also really, really important and interesting moves in places like Barcelona against tourism, right, against things like Airbnb, because that's pricing people out, pricing local people out of being able to live in the places that they have been born and grew up in, right? So there's all those kind of contestations, which I think are also really, really important. I mean, I guess a bigger question is to say, I mean, tourism is not going to go away. It's, it's always been part of what people do. People have always traveled and they always will. And, but, but I would be, I would want to question any simple argument that says, well, uh, we're contributing to the economy, so everything else is fine. You know what I mean? So we're, we're going to a safari in Kenya, and ours is an ethical safari, so everything's fine. You can point to many examples where it has tourism and the the kind of the funds that have been produced by tourist economy, have they helped in preserving cultural buildings, institutions? Yes, but that, <laughs> that's not all that's happening, right? Because in every act where officials have made decisions to prioritize, say, the preservation of a cultural monument or a building, that funding is being taken away from somewhere else. So what's happening on the other side of town, right? As the funds and the infrastructure and all the money is funneled into visitors coming in as opposed to local populations, right? Those tensions are never going to go away. They don't go away. You can't, this is the, I kind of react really badly against this sort of notion of tourism as a solution. It, it, it's never going to be that because it's always going to produce its own logics of power, its own inequalities and asymmetries. And it's just about sort of tracking those, isn't it? And, and figuring out which ones are more or less harmful and, inter and then making decisions about intervening where you can or, or where it makes more sense.
Do you have any um, specific examples or recommendations where you think this was a this was a real uh, good example of ethical tourism? So a lot of my work has um, looked at bigger sites like you know post-conflict sites where with museums and things like that, and where there are better examples of how museums have geared themselves towards enabling tourists to see bigger and more complicated pictures of how conflict works or what it, what has happened there. And there are worse examples of when that's sort of commodified into something that doesn't force tourists to, to really contemplate what happened in a space of conflict. So that, that's where most of my research is. But the, I mean, you know, if you, if you look at some of the ethical tourist research, I think like a lot of that is going on in, in places like South Africa and in Eastern Africa where there's a really interesting connection between sort of conservation uh, and tourism and that kind of stuff where you like safaris and things like that, where some are trying to claim themselves as being, um, you know, but conserving the animals or conserving nature where if you look into the practices, it's, it's doing the opposite. It's just massive commodification and all kinds of horrible complicity with um, illegal trade and animal parts and things like that. Mm, yeah. Um, so going back to the um, post-conflict museum, yeah, um, there's an aspect of tourism that I feel like people don't often examine, uh, at least consciously, which is uh, this concept of dark tourism or macabre yeah. tourism. Mm-hmm. Um, as you're saying, I feel like there are many examples to um, there being a benefit to this, educating people about the atrocities of war, uh, etc. Um, but I to me, it's often associated with a very uncomfortable voyeurism. Um, yeah. And yeah, just wondering what your thoughts are about how to kind of responsibly balance these two sides of this uh, uncomfortable equation. Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. Like the the literature on dark tourism, I don't, I don't want to say 15 years old, something like that. It's, you know, so that was an established kind of set of literatures and arguments that developed. Um, and really looking at the phenomenon of, of both sort of organized tourists or sort of serendip- what they called serendipitous tourists who would just arrive and go to these places of atrocity or mass death or violence. And um, there's a really powerful set of emotions and affects around why people want would want to do that. Um, my own view is I don't agree with the sort of um, the inherent moralizing that the dark tourism literature uh, produces. So what it does is it produces this kind of taxonomy between what they literally call hot, hotter forms of dark tourism and colder forms of dark tourism. <laughs> like, you know, the hotter ones being the more violent or more deaf, you know, or more close to it. And what happens in those arguments is um, a, a, like a judgment, right? A judgment about how tourists behave in these sites and that there's a really clear set of performances and behaviors that a tourist is supposed to do in a site of commemoration. And those behaviors are all around being reverent um, and being pious and obeying the main argument, which is about you have to respect the dead, you have to respect what's happening here. And you can see this most clearly in the uh, in museums around the Holocaust uh, and genocide museums. There's no opportunity for um, I don't. Dissent is maybe the wrong word, but there's no opportunity to deviate from 
this structured story about how you have to obey this form of commemoration. And I think the dark tourism literature reproduces that uncritically. And I think it's very difficult because you can understand why we want to respect what has happened somewhere. We, we don't want to be disrespectful. But at the same time, that produces a set of frameworks that are really, really disempowering, I think, in ways. And also, it, it can it can produce a very hegemonic story about about what happened in the past here. And it's a single story. And that's a problem. So a, a good example of all of that might be uh, in South Africa, right? The kind of the liberation narrative in South Africa, which got rep- reproduced in many, many museums and tourist sites, is a, is a really seductive story to believe in, isn't it, right? The liberation from apartheid, and we all want to believe in that, and we want to be a part of it. But in the effort to produce that story and represent it and exhibit and display it in museums, you ended up getting a hegemonic story that was singular, right? And it, it faced all kinds of voices that were part of the struggle on the, in the first instance. And secondly, it faced a lot of voices that would have been dissenting or would have had a different or more uncomfortable or disturbing that didn't fit into that main story. So I think I, I think the picture is much, much more complicated than the dark tourism literature lets us believe. And I wouldn't be somebody who would adhere to the kind of methodologies that work uses, which is very positivist and, you know, it doesn't apply to the sort of anthropological, the deep, deep hanging out that anthropologists do and the kind of, and, and the ethnographies that they do. It, it doesn't allow for that kind of rich, richness, I don't think. I think that's such a fascinating perspective. Most of the time, from my personal experience, the first hurdle is actually just getting over that uncomfortableness of being in, on that site or engaging with that material and sort of asking the questions of, of the people who are putting this on. Mm-hmm. Is, is it reasonable uh, that they are benefiting commercially from this? Mm-hmm. And how mm-hmm. much um, how much stories they are spinning, and what actually you're illuminating is that even in cases where um, the stories are handled very uh, respectfully and presented um, in in the least sort of like kind of um, cynically commercializing sense, um, and and as a tourist you are able to engage with it and behave in, in a way that is respectful, you are still in a space of um, a, a kind of singular ideology being presented. Um, and yeah, that sounds very problematic. Yeah, I, I guess it goes back. I mean, uh, there's no there's no possibility for um, those stories to not be commercialized or commodified. That's because we're operating within a tourist economy. So like we shouldn't be, I guess my point is we shouldn't be surprised at that, the commodification or the commercialization. We shouldn't be surprised that stories have to be reductive. We shouldn't be surprised that... They ha- you know, the museums and curators have to, like, make decisions and take lines on stuff, and then some things get excluded and not. Like, I, those are difficult decisions, but I guess the 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 question is that um, I would want to open more space for tourists to interpret material in their own way and to have the space to question even the main narrative that's coming at them. And I think that's a really challenging, that's like, for example, that's quite easy to do if you're doing a museum exhibit about something like children or the city, you know what I mean? Like something quite generic that everybody could, can find purchase in. When you're telling a story about conflict, that space is totally reduced because the, the notion that you would have 
space to contest the main story seems like it's disrespectful. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, yeah, yeah. So I've been so I've been working around those those questions. The, the the set of very difficult contestations and questions, and I've been so I've been working with museum curators as well and trying to understand it from their perspective and the the decisions that they have to make. So I kind of I mean, there's all kinds of questions to ask in that, and there's all kinds of questions to ask about examples or types of displays or exhibitions that we think may have done that better. Yeah. Or may have had, you know, been more successful at creating space to do that. Yeah, I, I feel like what you said uh, earlier about um, how the these type of museums um, about kind of this reduced space of experience um, makes it a very difficult place for any person visiting it to be critical. Yeah, um, because yeah. of the, the unrelatability of the stories being told. Exactly. And and so actually there's this. I, I suppose you're placing a lot of responsibility on on the curators yes. um, to to um, put on shows and ex, ex, and ex, exhibits in a way that that perhaps invites the the viewers in more so that they can empathize more and therefore be able to engage their own critical thought around the story. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that, um, so I've been working, I live in Belfast, and I've been working with the local museum, you know, in, in their representations of the of the troubles here. And one of the interesting conversations that we keep having is, is that balance between, you know, say somebody's visiting this place, and they don't really know that much about the troubles, or they don't know, you know, who were the main actors, who were the main groups, what happened, how many people died. So they don't actually know those, I, I don't use, use the word facts, but you know what I mean, the, the kind of what happened here they don't know that so you have to balance the, the the delivery of the what happened here story with a sense of all the mul like the, like the multiple narratives that went into that because one of the in one of the previous kind of iterations of that story it was a very singular story so now now the most recent one is about multiple voices and you're hearing you know different voices that experience in their everyday life what it meant to live in a, a divided society with violence but i think one of the things that I would like to see more of, I haven't seen enough of even elsewhere, is is the confrontation with a visitor, right? So they're learning about this conflict, for example. A tourist is learning about it. And, and to force them to think about how some of the structures that have produced that kind of violence remain with us, right? So how in your personal everyday life do you see the effects of violence or inequality or asymmetry and those are very very tough questions to confront tourists with but those are the kind of things um that i would want to see so in in an exa in the example i give you here but in the elster museum here that's looking at the troubles like yes the troubles are over yes we have a ceasefire but does that mean that the legacy that, that there aren't sort of like really problematic forms of legacy here where different forms of urban violence have become part of the fabric of the city that all kinds of different multiple layers of deprivation socioeconomic immobility all of those questions are a legacy of that violence do you see what i mean like it's still with us yeah so i also have a, i also have big problems with with conflict museums that that, that finish by saying the conflict is over mm. You know, we're all done now, and then everybody, especially tourists, walk out of the exhibition feeling lovely about themselves, right? And that was a very, that's a very problematic form that happens here 
in Northern Ireland because Northern Ireland, the peace process is often used as this model for everywhere else, as if you can simply pick it up and go apply it in Sri Lanka or somewhere else, right? And that's never the case. But the, the forms of kind of catharsis and reassurance and redemption that happen at the end of those kind of stories, that are, for me, incredibly problematic. That was our interview with um, Debbie Lyle. And on our interview with Tom Selwyn, when we spoke to him a few weeks ago, he also addressed this topic of dark tourism. So I'm just going to play that as well. Yeah, he's a, he's a very good example of travel where education and self-education and, and experience um, being at the top of, sort of his agenda, I suppose. Um, mm. But there are so many people who um, travel for other types of experiences. And, and I'd, I'd like to just go on to talk about dark tourism for a second. Um, well, I, I, I personally don't think very much of the expression dark tourism. Um, I don't think people go to the Normandy beaches because they want to confront, uh, you know, death and destruction in the war. I think probably they want to go and visit places where their relatives were active in the war. And it's basically to sort of fit their own family histories into the picture rather than um, confront something that is so-called dark. Um, and uh, some of my colleagues have written about the dark tourists who visit the Middle East um, and who, for example, go and look at the huge wall between um, Israel and Palestine that the Israelis built um, in the early 2000s. I think the majority of people who go to Israel-Palestine, for example, they go there because they have some interest in the kind of biblical landscape. They have an interest in how the Palestinians live and how the Israelis live and so on. And um, they are confronted by the wall. They find it very surprising um, and unfortunate. And there are a few, I suppose, who go because they want to confront something that they call dark. But I think the majority of people um, are really rather more interested in, in the life and culture of the region. Although that's my view. Many of my colleagues feel that there is something called dark tourism. So, you know, it's just a, a different view that I have. Yeah. I suppose for me what's helpful about the term is that it's, put a vocabulary into that space where you might not have consciously engaged with um, things such as, you know, the Jack the Ripper tour in Whitechapel. Um, when I heard the term dark tourism, it was the first time that I could really put my head around how just the question, the questioning of the existence of this type, um, this type of activity, really. Yeah, I follow that. I understand it. Um, it's quite logical. But I suppose if you think about uh, myths, generally, or you, you think about religious books, I mean, you even think of the Bible itself. There are lots of murders going on there, lots of wars, lots of battles, lots of violence and so on, but there are also lots of other things. And I think that um, the claim that dark tourism is somehow an extremely important version of tourism, I don't think that's, I, I don't agree with that really. I think that uh, people are interested in many aspects of life and of course if they find themselves in the East End they may go on a Jack the Ripper tour but I, I think probably they also go on lots of other tours um, and find lots of other interesting things there so to abstract the dark from the other things I think is a little bit uh, going to uh, is, is, is skewing the understanding really of what people are doing when they're tourists in London. 
Another thing to talk about, strangely enough, is volunteerism. And you might think to yourself, volunteerism on a show about dark tourism. But um, Daniela, what you said earlier on about the reflections of tourism kind of connect to the reasons to being a volunteer, no? Yeah. So as I was saying, one of the things that I find really troubling about tourism in general is the lack of reflection of exercise of privilege. And I would say that there are some forms of volunteerism that can be really linked with this cross-section of of tourism and privilege in that, you know, some of the kind of works that people do abroad while vol- volunteering, they could easily make a similar and meaningful impact in their home country doing similar work, whether it's helping children um to learn or play football and yet they choose to do it in a really beautiful tropical environment because it's a good opportunity to go there and see those places and I'm definitely not putting any moral judgment on that but it's definitely something that you can't really escape from as a question you know when we talked about that term tanatosis earlier this understanding of seeing and thinking about death giving you this exhilaration that you're alive. I feel like that ties very much into this this sense of, you know, when you go and volunteer somewhere, you're doing something good and you feel good about yourself. And But you also know that you can escape that and you can go home and not have those problems. It's a bit controversial, but I feel like volunteerism in many cases is first, firstly linked with tourism but also it's um, a form of dark tourism because it highlights your uh, your privilege against people who have less, just in as much as when you go on a dark tourism tour, um, your aliveness is highlighted against the darkness that you're seeing around you. Yeah, and um, I'd also like to mention a TED talk. It was called What's Wrong With Volunteers? And it's by this woman called Daniela Papi, and she now runs an organisation herself. And she talks about her experiences as a volunteer. She volunteered in a whole load of places. And I think one of the things that she highlights as being a problem to volunteerism, which allows people to come on board and come on board for a very short amount of time, some sometimes only one or two days uh, or a couple of weeks, is that in allowing people to do this, we are not really finding a sustainable solution to some of these very complex problems that people have in these countries. And so I think what volunteerism sometimes does is it allows you to go somewhere and you help out with people. Most of the time you're helping out not as an expert in anything. You're going there and you're allowed to feel quite a massive sense of achievement for having been there and having helped. But these these achievements are most the time not long term and she says she actually reflects on what it took for her to build her organization and she says for all the time she went over to all these different countries and she stayed there for like what six weeks another place for like four weeks and every single time she got a massive sense of like i'm helping i'm participating but it was only until she started up her own organization in cambodia and for six years was like struggling making mistakes um really trying to set up something sustainable that she realized that everything she had done before actually wasn't helping at all what i really liked that she highlighted is that 
you need to learn before you can help. And I think that's another aspect of privilege is the fact that you think you can help before you know. There's a lot that people can offer, um, but that kind of learning first and figuring out what is the meaningful thing that you can do is so, so, so important. And I think that like people in general have this responsibility to ask each other this question. You went on a volunteer trip and, and you probably thought, you know, this company that I'm volunteering with probably did their research. Yeah, I think when you go on these, when you put yourself forward for these experiences, you are looking to the experts, so to say, to direct you to do the work you need to do. Like some people did, who put themselves forward, did look at it as a very interesting uh, way to travel. Also, sometimes from the organisations, there isn't actually an inf like a structure put in place to have impactful effect on on the community or the people that you're going there to help. Sometimes there can be this idea that you are going to be, you're going to help, so you're going to be a hero. But actually what I found is that you'll learn so much. The, the benefit is really what you learn from going to these places yeah, which is just yeah. weird, really, because yeah. then you, you go with the idea that, you know, I, I'm i so privileged, I'm going to help these people. And actually, you've learned something, you've just like, maybe more than helping them, you've just taken stuff for yourself. Yeah, I don't feel like it's that impactful, to be very honest with you. And I just think it, part of it is down to the structures that are actually there. I think, obviously, if you want to be a volunteer and you want to volunteer long term uh, and you want to offer skills, I mean, like doctors. Doctors without borders. Yeah, exactly. Like the work they do, you can't, you can't, I mean, sure. <laughs> I've never been there, but I don't think I can slate that. Sure. That's a really good point. Yeah, I mean, like you know I mean? we're like, using really big terms here, but I think the, the, the point that we're trying to make is just about being more conscious about what it means when you go into someone else's community and you think you're doing something good. Um, and obviously just, we're kind of sort of touching on aid work and charity in general yeah. in, in this sort of sphere of discussion and yeah. i think it's is not is not responsible of us to to speak about it as if it's is is a wide sweeping statement we can make about anything but i do think that it's just it's a question about being conscious and also i want to also say you can frame it in a negative way or a positive way the negative way of saying is you know people just want to go and see a beautiful island and they kind of dress it up with oh i'm gonna do some good the positive way of framing that is that you know people want to learn about places and travel and and that in itself is nothing wrong and actually they choose to combine it with doing doing some service or at least they think they're doing service or maybe they are doing service because they're working with a really good company at the end of the day for me it's just that question of like how 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 much can you access whether what you're doing truly is helping i think the criticism is about these sort of like volunteerism packages where it's usually offered via some sort of education program or offered via gap year and you go to somewhere and you're usually working with children who are living in orphanages where what you've mostly come to offer them is usually like english lessons or like after school club Mm. so that's that's where i think Mm. maybe you should double Um check you know. Yeah. So actually, before we, I want to, uh, I want to talk about orphanages in, in in particular. But before we get there, I don't want to put you too much on the spot. But bef- 
But can you remember, before you went on your volunteer trip, how much research you personally did? I mean, you were a, a very young person at the time yourself. I literally went on <laughs> the charity, the charity's website and read about them and I scrolled through pictures and etc. I went with my university group. I kind of trusted that, yeah. you know, my students' union and what they had on place. I saw it as a great opportunity because I'd always wanted to, and I still am someone who still wants to, like, help. You know, I'm still someone who still helps in my own community. So I thought it was a great opportunity to to help people who, are, who I did perceive as maybe in need of... The way it was presented was Vietnam, which is where I went to, was kind of becoming, funnily enough, more of a tourist... A, like, it was changing and was becoming better because of tourism. And so it would have put these young children at an advantage for them to speak English. They'd get higher paid jobs and et cetera and et cetera. It all made sense. But um, in the reality, I don't know. I feel like I feel like yeah. people, people in Vietnam could have quite easily have done what I did, to be very honest with you. Yeah. You know, and then also, yeah. I feel like just hearing what you're saying there, it just feels like your entry point into that that situation was already in a very, very entangled um, mm. situation because even <laughs> in your presentation of it, it's like prepare because the tourism industry is booming. It would potentially be beneficial for these kids to speak English when they grow up so that they can be having better jobs in tourism itself. Yeah. And I think there is like, um, this is what I mean. This is why there are sometimes benefits to tourism. Tourism can lead to a lot of good for if, if it's being exercise for the benefit of the people who live in the country mm. i believe mm. no no and i don't then, know you know i, I just think know. tourism is is like travel like I it's just a thing that trash. happens i was like <laughs> <laughs> tourism is trash so <laughs> trash <laughs> i thought maybe we'll just recap on on that uh, amazing ted talk which we paraphrased a lot of mm. um not the tourism is trash part <laughs> um so yeah if you if you're interested in seeing it um the the TED talk is called What's Wrong with Volunteer Travel and it's given by Daniela Papi To widen up the term or the idea of darker tourism there are many different streams to it some streams of dark tourism can involve things like human trafficking, um, child labour, child... Child prostitution? Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think um, this is such a broad topic and way beyond the scope that we have and tools that we have between uh, Rona and I to discuss on this show right now. But it's important to address it because... Yeah, because it is still a reason for why people travel. Right. You know? Uh, and it's still one of the abuses and the exploitations that can come about when people do uh, technically go on holiday. Yeah. Um, I suppose, yeah, the, 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 also the thing is we don't want to make any moral judgments or discuss the, the ethics of uh, sex works sex work in general and actually what makes this discussion quite uh difficult is that it's not so much the fact that it's tied with tourism that makes having sex with girls and boys younger than 18 wrong it's just the fact of 
it's itself is wrong um but that the the tourism side of it means that there's a place or a platform or a a loophole or a a kind of gap in in law practices where people can more easily um make this type of abuse happen yeah i think people who are going to be a sex tourist and are trying to um, do it in a way which is quite clearly exploitative, are going to countries which don't have uh, regulations or standards. I think the problem is that sometimes when these people are traveling for those purposes with ill intentions, they're usually going to um, countries where sex workers do not have, are not protected. And when I say protected, they're not themselves given legal rights or um, acting upon their own agency. This isn't to support any enforcement of a Norwegian model which would criminalise someone who wanted to be a sex tourist. It's more asking for a solution to the gap we currently have, which is that there aren't regulations and safety measures put in place for sex workers, which allow them to screen clients who come from abroad and get protection from from potentially seedy clients. The weird thing about what we're saying here is like, we've always, so far in, in these two episodes, we've been talking about how to be more conscious when you travel, um, how to think about your ecological footprint and your impact on the community. And, you know, if you're volunteering, are you doing um, actually really like good things and what, what are you leaving behind? And if you talk about sex tourists who travel to have sex with people under the age of 18, there is no room for them to be conscious about that because they're not conscious of it. They are seeking explicitly something that's wrong. Explicitly something that is illegal. I guess it's important to just say that obviously we understand that the use of the term dark tourism in academics um, I think doesn't include sex tourism, but it's important for us to bring that up in this in this conversation because some of the facts around sex tourism is extremely shocking and I don't think it's really talked about enough. Yeah, and I think that's not to say that there is a problem inherently with, tech, with sex tourism. It's just to say that in certain places, the regulations and the systems that are in place for making sure that everyone who's participating in it is doing so with their own agency and that also the people who are going there to pursue it are also the right sort of clientele and are not clientele who are going over to commit a crime or take advantage of anyone. Um, Because these regulations are not quite in place, um, sometimes that form of tourism can be quite problematic as well. We want to say a massive thanks to everyone who's given their thoughts on this topic. So that was Debbie Lyle and also Tom Selwyn. Thank you for tuning in to Third Waves and stay tuned online at Third Magazine on Instagram. That's third with three eyes.
I'm Rona. And I'm Daniela. 